0: There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Friday, March 16th, 2018, from Slate It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I've got a complaint. Yes, yes, you know it would come eventually. This is the show where Mike registers a complaint. And the complaint is this.
1: Tonight, the Trump administration acknowledging that Russia meddled in the 2016 election.
2: Because the special counsel can look into the Russian meddling issue. The and
1: administration is acknowledging here that Russia meddled in Talk the Talk of
2: Russian meddling. Evidence of Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election was beyond dispute.
0: Yeah. Referring to what happened is the Russians meddling. They're a meddling. Oh, you stinkers. You're fiddling with us. Just like how they use the nerve agent Navichok to monkey with the enzyme acetylcholine esterase function of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in London. That bit of tinkering, of course, leads to uncontrolled secretions in the lung and mouth, diarrhea, vomiting, sweating, convulsions, delusions, raising heartbeat, and generalized weakness that could lead to paralysis, suffocation, and, of course, death. This, by the way, was the first chemical weapons assault on a NATO member state or... Some pretty serious trifling, mister. So I prefer to hear a phrase other than the word meddling in U.S. elections. How about undermining or thwarting, or at least the attempted thwarting, or striking at the defining function of a democratic state? It's not a harebrained scheme. It's not a word most associated with a crime-solving Great Dane and his compatriots. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling
2: kids and your spooky old dog.
0: Man, I hope Wayne LaPierre one day says that to Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg. On the show, I spiel about the people and representing the people and how hard it is because there are so many people. But first, to the year 1969, a time that reeks of change, of tumult, and of just a lot of weed. It was a weaker strain. Oh yeah, sorry to harsh your mellow. But here to sand and smooth and bevel your mellow is Chris Malamphy talking about the greatest hits of the seminal year, 1969. I'm here to tell you about a podcast called the Trump Cast. It is about Trump, this podcast from It comes out a few days a week. I'm glad they're not pinning themselves down to a more structured production schedule. Cast is a show about that which is Trump-related. Comments, cabinet, family, hair. It is hosted by Jacob Weisberg, who is my boss, and even if he weren't, I would probably call him brilliant. And Virginia Heffernan, who I have to say, she on that show engages in these uh, kind of verbal flights of fancy that remind me a little bit of a young Mike Pasca, even though I think we're almost exactly the same age. Also, Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie, chips in. That guy is a treasure. They have had some great shows in the past week about Ivanka Trump, the departure of Rex Tillerson, the Stormy Daniels thing, and unlike Stormy and the lawyering of Michael Cohen, they will not be silent. Subscribe to Trumpcast from Slate. It was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Actually, I don't even know if that's astrologically accurate, if there is such a thing. Yes, there is such a thing. Yeah, also, in retrospect, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. But what was the spirit? In 1969, the slew of hits atop the pop charts were uh, meaningful, but maybe not exactly as indicative of the age as uh, we would think in retrospect. You know what I mean, Chris Malamphy?
2: I would say they're indicative of the age, but uh, that depends on your definition of what the age meant in 1969.
0: So Chris Malamphy is the impresario behind the podcast Hit Parade, the Slate Podcast, where he talks about music. He's a music expert every once in a while. Like now, he comes in here to talk about the number one hits of a year, and this year we're doing 1969. Thanks for coming in, Chris. You got it, Mike. Anytime. Let's start with this. I think that this is a band that is not played that much anymore. The fifth dimension. Yeah. But but they're pretty good. They're really talented and they're the genre's a little kind of like soft rock meets soul. Exactly. I don't know if that exists, mm-hmm. but the fifth dimension were really big in 1969.
2: The hits of 1969 are not necessarily representative of what you think 1969 would be. The groovy, hippie post-Summer of Love. Summer of Love is now two years in the rear view. Everything started to get hip and groovy around 66. It's all been mainstreamed, right? And so the Fifth Dimension, the Fifth Dimension have two number one hits in 1969. 1969 is their absolute apex. And to your point, let's give them credit. They're, they're very talented and they're very versatile. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have multiple hits. The two number ones in 69 are a medley of two songs from the musical Hair. If we want to talk about um, the first one, which is Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine In. Mm-hmm. Hey. Not actually from the cast album. The uh, Broadway musical Hair uh, arrived in 1968 on Broadway. And by 1969, it was a phenomenon. Hair, not to put too fine a point on it, is the Hamilton of 1969. It is the, the crossover Broadway show that is trying to hippify Broadway yeah. and, you know, bring the blue-haired audience of Broadway and the young audience together, uh, you know, in, in one place.
0: In the musical vernacular of the day.
2: Indeed. in, yes. in Precisely. Yes. Precisely. In the musical vernacular
0: of the day. Give
2: me a head with hair. Long, beautiful.
0: Hair was also dominating both Sly and The Family Stone. <laughs> I mean, just, just their, <laughs> nice their afros. Nice yes, segue. Yes. I like that. Uh, what, what a great group. Is, was Everyday People their biggest hit? Did they ever have any other number one hits?
2: They had several number one hits. Mm. Uh, it, it may well be their biggest uh, number one hit because it spent uh, four weeks at number one. I'm not sure that any of their others spent quite as many weeks as number one, but Everyday People is um, their real breakthrough, although they, they had already scored a top 10 hit the year before with Dance to the Music, and throughout 68, they were already on... On the way up, and then Everyday People just kind of makes them worldwide. It's such a fantastic song. It's such a smart song. Obviously a I don't even want to call it a diatribe because it's so joyous. It's a it's a uh, a song about racism and the, the foolhardiness of limiting yourself and your perspective. Uh, one of my favorite bits in the song is when Rose Stone uh, of Sly and the Family Stone sings that little bridge that goes there is a brown one or how does it go? Like blue one that and It's basically to the melody of the, the playground taunt, nyanya. Right, right, right. And Sly Stone has turned it on its head and made it actually very inspiring and joyous and pointing out just how silly and childish it is to to put people in a
0: box. All right. Thank you for the segue, because speaking of nyanya, "nyan Nya 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 Nya, hey, hey, goodbye. Oh,
2: haha, <laughs> All right. So now if there's a song on this list, Mike, that you of all people, yeah. as a former co-host of hang up and listen, Yes, and a lifelong sports fan, have probably heard more non-professional people sing in your Mm -hmm. lifetime it is probably Steam's na-na, hey-hey, kiss him goodbye. It
0: used to be a bit more popular. It's still really popular in English football, but uh, yeah, it's a stadium regular.
2: Backstory? Steam's Nana na, Hey Hey Kiss him Goodbye it was an accidental hit that was intended, written, conceived as a B side. Yeah. They record all of the potential A sides, and then they've got some studio time. They have this song that Paul Leica had co-written years before that's Called "Kiss Him Goodbye" and it's not even a full song. And to finish out the song, they literally just start going na 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 na. Yeah.
0: It's a good song, but what it really is is a chorus and then some verses. And, exactly, and like even not even lyrics up to "Hey, Hey, Goodbye." And
2: yet here we are, whatever, forty yeah. years later, fifty years later, almost, and the thing is endured. It 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 was presented to radio stations, and radio stations all preferred the flip side. So go figure. <laughs>
0: Uh, The Stones and the Beatles are represented. The Stones with Honky Tonk Woman and the Beatles have come together beside something, something in the way she moves, and get back. Get Back. Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah, what's interesting about 69 as far as the Beatles are concerned is that you can bookend their two projects and kind of to put it bluntly their their disintegration in 1969. Yeah. Get Back is from what would have been an album and a project called Get Back, which famously the Beatles decided that they were tired of studio trickery or so they said, and they wanted to simultaneously film a documentary of them putting together an album kind of live, quote unquote. Like they were in the studio, they were in a giant film studio what you remember if you actually see the movie, which later became let it be is that it's freezing cold in there they're all wearing coats and they're trying to like write songs on the fly and and do it chuck berry style and be very loose about it and of course this is the moment when you know yoko ono is part of their lives and they're all bitter about that the white album had come out the year before they're all bitter about that and so you're kind of watching them very tensely try to keep it all together
0: is that by the way is that looseness why the beginning of get back starts with like john lennon doing a mock verse of it
2: uh, in the – that's in the album version. On the single version, which was a number one hit in early 69, that, that chatter is, is, is out. Uh, what's most interesting though from a historical standpoint about Get Back is that it is the only Beatles single, not just number one single, single period since Tony Sheridan's My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean which, before they were famous that, where the Beatles shared credit. On the label. The full credit of Get Back is the Beatles with Billy Preston. He was important. He, he was important. He, play- yeah. he doesn't sing, but he
0: plays that killer keyboard solo in the middle. And they really used him. He wasn't just a session musician who they, who they assigned the part to. They really he worked did. worked on the song. They
2: let him play. And more importantly, it's been said many times as people have recounted the, the troubled Get Back project, George Harrison invited him to the session mostly to keep them all in line and mm-hmm. behaving. They were all bickering so much he thought, if I bring in a guest musician, at least everybody will be on their best behavior. And it, and it kind of worked. And of course, in that famous performance on the roof of Apple Corps, Billy Preston, that's not the recording that wound up as the single, but they do perform Get Back and there's Billy Preston right alongside them on the roof of Apple Corps.
0: And the other other singles come together at something, which are literally A-side, B-side, two sides of a coin, but the Beatles at their sweetest and the Beatles at their hardest.
2: Yeah, well, and I will correct you in one tiny way, which is that technically when they put it out, they considered it a double A-side single. Double A-side. And and they didn't necessarily designate which was going to be the A-side. I talked about this in a recent Hit Parade episode, but briefly, uh, the little detail that's interesting about Come Together Something is that it never would have been a number one hit if not for both sides, and if not for a Billboard rule change. While the song was on the rise both songs, both sides of the of the song were in separate chart positions as was the rule on the Billboard Hot 100 at the time. Mm. Literally in the middle of its chart climb, Billboard changed the rule and said, okay, you can combine both sides of a single into a single chart position. And that combined... You know, those combined points made come together something a number one hit. So the
0: reason it could be a different—so you, you, maybe a listener is saying, wait a minute, it's the same physical unit. How right. could it be a different position? The answer must be radio plays, Correct. which also factors. Think them. about it.
2: What is the Hot 100? It's an average of two things, right? It's a, it's, it's a pool of two pieces of data, radio airplay and record sales. Well, when you go to the store to buy a 45 RPM, you're buying two songs at one time. The radio can only play one song at one time. Billboard really literally couldn't make up its mind about what to do about this for most of the Hot 100's history. They flipped the rule on B-sides over and over again. Should they go in the same position? Should they go in separate positions? They kind of couldn't make up their mind, but they made a very pivotal decision in 69 and basically gave the Beatles a number one single they otherwise wouldn't have.
0: So we remember maybe the 60s as a time where there there was message music and politicized music, but the I find that often the politicized message songs that went to number one just have have a muddle of politics or message. Like <laughs> in the year twenty five twenty five by Zagger and Evans. If
2: political records were and I'm putting political in scare quotes were popular enough to go all the way to number one generally they were so inoffensive and, and such pablum that it yeah. was it was a question whether they were saying anything at all in the year 2525 parentheses Exordium and Terminus uh, was, a no, was the song of the summer arguably of 1969 it was number one for six weeks one interesting thing I looked up because I was curious about this it was on and off the chart in just 13 weeks total which shows you what a short lived hit it was mm-hmm. when Billboard ranked the, the top hits of the year at the end of the year in the year 2525, despite spending a month and a half at number one, only ranked like 25th for the year. So it was this kind of yeah. flash in the pan. They were a one-hit wonder act, Zager and Evans, a guy named Denny Zager, and a guy named Rick Evans. Rick was the writer of the song. And it's just this pile-up of weird scenarios in, in some crazy future. In the year twenty five twenty five. if man is still alive, if woman can survive. It sounded topical without <laughs> actually saying a whole hell of a lot.
0: Yeah. The licensing rights must not be expensive to that song, but whenever they do uh, a show, or a movie, and they want to evoke the 60s, they steer away from this. Even though, as you said, it was the song of the summer. Right. They'll put on Hair. They'll put on The Fifth Dimension. They'll put on any number of these they'll songs. They'll put on that For What about. It's Worth by the Buffalo Springfield. Sure. there's so many sure. other songs that, that evoke say 60s. 69. And yet this, this <laughs> thing was number one for a month song. and a half, and yeah. it's, it's, it's just too terrible. I yeah, I think you're right. In the year 35, 35, ain't gonna need to tell the truth.
2: You mentioned uh, Elvis, uh, yeah. Suspicious Minds. This is Elvis's, even though Elvis only dies eight years later, this is Elvis's last number one hit. And it's kind of his afterburner number one hit. And it's it's uh, many people's favorite Elvis song. It's a terrific record written by uh, Mark James, who, by the way, also wrote Always On My Mind, another great Record with you know a little bit of country lilt to it. Suspicious Minds was basically the result of Elvis's comeback in '68. He famously in December of '68 had uh, a special on NBC TV called uh, Singer Presents Elvis, which is now commonly known as the '68 Comeback Special. After several years of wilderness where Elvis was acting in terrible movies, scoring minor hits, basically kind of out of the '60s conversation, yeah. he came roaring back. And Suspicious Minds is sort of the the, the prize for that. It's a really good song. Why can't
1: you see what you're doing?
0: There's one song that I literally have never heard, Dizzy by Tommy Rowe, and it was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. Tell me about this. Tommy
2: Rowe's an interesting character. First of all, Tommy Rowe has two number one hits, and they are in 1962 and 1969. So this Mm. guy's a weird survivor. He's basically a genius at bubblegum pop. His first number one hit back in 62 is a record called Sheila, which sounds for all the world like Buddy Holly. It's basically a Buddy Holly ripoff. And the guy was kind of a chameleon. He was good at sort of adapting to the idiom of the day. Now, Dizzy, which is his number one hit in 1969. First of all, the backing band on uh, Dizzy is actually an excellent band, The Wrecking Crew. If you've never heard of The Wrecking oh, Crew. Oh yeah, there's a
0: great documentary on them. There's the a great Crew documentary recently. about them.
2: If you're a music fan, you owe it to yourself to watch the documentary about yep. The Wrecking Crew. They are the band behind Phil Speck. They are the band behind Pet Sounds and the Beach Boys. Um, Wrecking Crew is playing, so if it sounds like better than the record should sound, it's, it's because <laughs> the Wrecking Crew is playing on it. But Dizzy is this sort of—it's very light psychedelic pop. That uh, w- one of the interesting quirks about it is that it changes keys constantly. It's got this really cool minor key chorus that he then shifts up a key multiple times, even before the, the chorus is over, and it's just an earworm. I'm so- And the guy was a survivor. He Between the 62 number one hit and the 69 number one hit, he'd had multiple top 10 hits. He wouldn't be like at the center of the conversation constantly. But just every 18 months to two years, he'd come back to, with a hit like Sweet Pea or Hooray for Hazel. These were top 10 hits. And he's you know largely forgotten now, but he was just kind of around the entire decade. Tommy well, Rowe.
0: Awesome. All right, this is uh the thesis question. What do you think 1969 and the number one hits tell us about music and and the Zeitgeist?
2: What's happening in 69 almost accidentally but but poetically is that a lot of groups are sort of finishing up. I mentioned the Beatles already fin- effectively ending their career. They're going to they're going to break up in early 1970. Diana Ross and the Supremes are on their way out, but it's also the record industry, it's taken them a while, but they have kind of decoded flower power, they've decoded psychedelic pop and And they've mainstreamed it to the point that, you know, bands like The Fifth Dimension, uh, you know, are able to sort of reflect the times and yet you know, be kind of a more mom-and-dad-friendly version of the times. And there's there's a whole lot of that in 69. You know, by the end of the year, of course, you've got uh, both Woodstock, which is, you know, the high point among live concerts in 1969, and Altamont, which uh, happens in December 69. Yeah. So, you know, the 60s are about to come to a close, and what the 60s means is sort of, you know, about to be put in a box and set aside for all time. And so I would say these records, there are high points like Everyday People and Get Back, there are low points <laughs> (laughs) like in the year 2525, but you kind of get this sampler of how the 60s has been refracted through pure pop for the last half decade, and uh, it's all being, you know, ushered to the top of the charts.
0: Chris Malamfy, his podcast is Hit Parade. Chris, thanks again for doing this. Anytime, Mike. And now the spiel, Mike's thoughts. So I was listening to the New York Times podcast, The Daily. They featured the words, the statement on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives, the words of a legislator who was voting on the gun control bill. He was for it. His name was Jared Moskowitz. He's from Parkland. He's a graduate of Stoneman Douglas High School. This guy has a four-year-old. The four-year-old was taking a preschool class, and it was led by a woman named Jen Guttenberg, And at the very moment the shooting was going down, Jen Guttenberg protected Representative Moskowitz's son. And what he couldn't know, what she couldn't know, was that at that very moment, Jen Guttenberg's daughter was being killed by that gunman. So here is what he said on the floor of the
1: legislature. People, when I would tell them, hey, I'm an elected official, I'm on this commission from the city of Parkland, the first thing they would say to me is, where the hell is Parkland? Well, now the world knows where Parkland is. And his four-year-old son was in preschool down the street from the shooting. He had been so happy, had to learn to write his name, but he wanted to get better. So we signed him up for a writing class. That writing class was going on in Parkland on the afternoon of February 14th, around the corner from Douglas. And? And that class was taught by Jen Guttenberg. The boy's teacher had her daughter at Stoneman Douglas, you see, she lost her daughter, Jamie, while she was teaching my son had a right. She put my kid in a closet when her daughter died. I wanted to say thank you at the funeral. I didn't know how to do that. I hope that when I push the green button, that, that will show all the appreciation that I need and that she needs. You don't need to stand with me. I don't need you to stand with me. I need you to stand with the families. Push the green button. Thank you. So,
0: how could you vote against it? How could you not give the bill the green light? Well, 50 representatives could and, in fact, did vote against it. 67 didn't. The bill passed. And it's interesting, actually, because 57 of the yes votes were from Republicans. So, of the 67, Most of them, the overwhelming majority, were from Republicans. Only 10 Democrats, like Moskowitz, voted for the bill. The other 31 Democrats voted no. So why did Moskowitz vote yes? Why did he break with his party? I mean, you can't even ask the question. You heard it. It was because he was personally touched. Because the news of the tragedy for him wasn't news, it was a reality. Because the victims weren't characters who he heard of afterwards in the context of their being victims. They were people to him. They were his son's teacher. And this happens a lot in politics where a politician will become either a fierce advocate for an issue or just break with party orthodoxy and sometimes both because of a personal connection. Representative Pete Domenici of New Mexico, he died recently. He was one of the authors of the landmark Wellstone Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. He's a big advocate for the mentally ill. Why? Because he had a daughter, Claire, who had schizophrenia. Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio five years ago, came out as for gay marriage. Why? Well, seven years ago, Rob Portman's son came out as gay. So the personal... Shapes policy, of course, it doesn't. It doesn't just have to be the personal that happens to a member of the person's family, it can be people they know, it can be neighbors not the idea of neighbors, like the actual guy who lives next door, people in their constituency who they talk to every day. And I was thinking about it, and I think this might be a big and underexplored explanation for America's political dysfunction. It's pretty simple America's big, America's huge, maybe it's too big. Maybe it's too big for our representatives to actually represent actual people, people they know, as opposed to their sense of people, or the Twitter mob version of people, or the letter-writing campaigns of people. The founders knew this. They invented a system. They understood human frailty. They wanted to have representatives know their actual constituents. The year, 1789, that was the first Congress— and there were 59 congressmen, all men, of course. They added five more during the session. So it got up to 64 members of Congress. The first census in 1790 revealed there were 3.9 million Americans. So it means that just divided by the number of Americans, each congressman was representing 60,000 people. But if you look at the citizens of America, apportionment meant that our first Members of the House of Representatives, our first congressmen, were representing 33,000 citizens each. It's now the 115th Congress. It's up to 700,000 citizens. It's more than 20 times the original idea. And sure, today's congressmen go back and they do town halls or hold town halls and maybe hear from the noisiest of their constituents. You know where the original congressmen used to hear from constituents? At the actual town hall, the hall in their town. And they'd come across their constituents just as a matter of course. I suppose we can convince ourselves that media shortens distances. You know, Zuckerberg's preaching that all the time. So maybe 700,000 today feels like, I don't know, 300,000 in a pre-internet age. But there's no way it's 33,000. We say e pluribus unum, but we're not one. We proudly acknowledge that America was the only country founded on an idea. But if we press hard, we have different ideas about what that idea is or was. You have a rancher in Montana, you have a suburbanite from St. Louis, you have a Native American in Florida, you have a black man in New Jersey, and let's make him a naturalized citizen. He was born in Nigeria. These are many. We say they're one. Now, our president has just given up, never tried to represent all of Americans. But the best representatives, the best senators, they do, they try at least, It's easier when you represent an area or a state that's more or less in agreement, or at least where a vast majority of people agree on the big issues. But thinking about real people, I've just got to believe thinking about specific people is a better way to orient your thinking, to orient your service to the people you're thinking about. A representative doing his best or her best will represent the idea of his or her constituency differently then he or she will represent an actual constituent. I've got no solution to this problem. By the way, the New Hampshire state legislature, the lower house, has 400 representatives. You know, the U.S. Congress has 435. New Hampshire is uh, not as big as the U.S. Pew used to do this ranking of the states. And the last time they did it, or at least the last time I found 10 years ago, New Hampshire had the lowest grade, a D+. Plus. Today, I've got to think there are some states that might be lower than that, Oklahoma, okay? But a legislature where all the members represented 3,000 people, New Hampshire, was doing a worse job Then California, where they have 80 lawmakers in the lower house and 40 million people. So they represent half a million people each. So, again, I don't know the right number. I don't think there even is a right number. I just think that maybe being cognizant of the power of personal experience should influence lawmakers to seek out genuine experiences, especially a genuine experience other than the classic, you know, so many people come up to me on the rope line and they say, we're hungry for change. Maybe they should build a day where, as a public official, without announcing it, they go to a public place and they listen to the stuff people are saying. A bar, a barbershop, a book club. Those are often in private homes you might want to call ahead. And all they should try to do is listen and connect. And that's just one man's opinion. Take it for what it's worth. Which, if you've been listening to my entire premise here, is quite a lot. And that's it for today's show. In the year 2525, just producer Pierre bien may still be alive. At least in a glass jar, you'll find his mind. And senior producer Mary Wilson will keep it as a prize in the year 3535. In the year 7575, the executive producer of Slate Podcast will be Steve Lick-Tai. I've got a feeling that he'll thrive. The gist. In the year 8585, we'll eat our cereal with a knife. Maybe two knives. Peru de Peru.